HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. Today we're bringing you Inside the Slow Seed Summit, a conference hosted by Slow Food USA, presenting perspectives on food security, seed preservation and sovereignty, and community engagement. The conference took place between May 13th and 15th, 2022, and as media partners for the summit, we're excited to give you an inside look at key conversations. Enjoy this peek into the Slow Seed Summit. Welcome everyone to day two of our Slow Seed Summit. Today, we are going to talk about all things having to do with um, seed advocacy. And we have an amazing um, keynote today. My name is Mara Welton. I'll be doing the tech hosting today. I normally am the programs director, Slow Food USA, but for this session, I'll be wearing the tech host hat. Um, If you have questions throughout the seminar or the webinar, can you please just put them in the chat and I will moderate those for us. Um, everybody should be muted. And um, we are going to get started. I wanted to introduce today um, my co-seed summit planning committee member, Sarah El Said. She's based in Arizona and is a slow food leader there. I'm going to turn it over to you, Sarah. You can introduce our keynote speaker. Yes, thank you. Um, Thank you, Mara, for uh, introducing me. And I'm very excited about uh, today's um, program in general. Um, We're going to be tackling a lot of different topics uh, related to genetic engineering, um, patents, um, seed sovereignty. So there's a big lineup of of important issues that we're going to be tackling over the course of of the day. So stick around. Um, um, There's also going to be a session uh, later at around 2.15 ET uh, Eastern time, where we're going to really um, tap into the network and try to think what do these conversations mean to our movement, to the slow food movement. So um, I hope you really get engaged today. Um, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Astrid Oostricher. I spent a uh, past few minutes trying to pronounce her name. Um, she actually told us something really interesting about her name, which means that 
uh, it means being an Austrian. And so, um, you know, she's she's an Austrian. She's not based in Austria right now, but she's um, going to be talking to us about genetic engineering, ethical technologies surrounding genetic modifications and um, understanding uh, the, that, that context in relation to seeds. Um, she's working at uh, TEST Biotech, which is an institute for independent impact assessment of biotechnology as a policy advisor. And she does that um, as part of the European Union's legislatory process. Um, and she has a background in international development with a focus on agriculture and food policies. Uh, she has both practical experience of working on mostly organic farms, as well as several years of working in the political environment in the European Union's capital in Brussels. Astrid will really be like setting the stage right now from a European perspective, like the European advocacy and policy space as it relates to seeds. So we are going to pass the baton on to Astrid. And then after she's uh, finished, we will have a chance to ask questions. So if you would like, after you finish with your introductions in the chat, if there are questions that arise, please start putting them already in, in the chat and I will compile them so that um, we can have a, a, a rich discussion at the end. Thank you very much, Astrid, for being here. Yes, thank you, Sarah, so much for introducing me. I will first try and uh, share my slides. So just one moment, please. Um, can you see them all right? Full screen and yes. everything? Okay, Perfect. good. So uh, the topic of uh, my talk today is challenges related to the genetic engineering of seeds. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And what I will talk about is um, first, I'll try and give a general outline of the debate uh, and also uh, the role that we see for ourselves as an organization in this debate. And then I will go a little bit more into detail uh, on the risks of new genetic engineering techniques when applied to seeds and also explain why they cannot be put on a level with conventional breeding. And to finish, I will explain our main demands when it comes to legislation and also what is likely to happen if no proper legislation is in place. So first I'd like to uh, explain a little bit about our organization. Uh, here you see our website. Um, and it's a very uh, uh, specialized organization which only focuses on the issue of genetic engineering of both plants and animals and also other organisms like microorganisms. Um, we're about six to seven people based in Munich, Germany. And uh, as Sarah said before, I'm based in uh, Brussels uh, to relate to EU decision makers because of course the uh, genetic engineering is uh, legislated at the European level in the EU. Um, and uh, so we are working, as I said, exclusively on genetic engineering. Um, and we are looking at it from the perspective of the protection goals. So environment, nature and health. We do so in a science-based way. So we can always provide uh, the scientific literature to back up what we are saying. And the reason uh, why we focus mainly on the risks of the technology 
is because we think that there is an imbalance in the information available on the subject. Because most researchers that work in this field are doing applied science. So they look at the potential of the technology and try to develop applications that can be useful for agriculture or other fields. But there are very few research funds dedicated to looking at the risks of this technology for environment and health. So we try to counterbalance a bit uh, because we think it is important when it comes to political decision-making that politicians as well as the wider society have access uh, to different kinds of information to be able to make up their minds. So to sum up, when we look at the implications of genetic engineering, we try to do so in an objective way by taking into account all the latest science, but we have our own perspective, which is the protection of environment and health. So staying objective in this debate also means that we do not take a st stance against genetic engineering as such, because we think that no one can know what the future will bring. We're talking here about a technology which develops in a rapid pace. Nobody can know whether maybe in five or 10 years from now, you may have plants or animals that come out of this, which are useful for agriculture whilst being perfectly safe for environment and health. All that we know is that at the current stage, we do not see new GE organisms with real benefits that can be evidenced and substantiated by independent assessments. On the contrary, we see that there is a lot of hype and a lot of hot air surrounding the potential applications, whilst the risks linked to the technology are not given the attention that they deserve. What's also important for you to know is that we are an independent organization in the sense that we do not receive any funding from the biotechnology industry. Uh, we choose and develop our projects based on our own priorities and not upon request of third parties. Our funds come from private donations and environmental foundations, as well as from the German Ministry of uh, Environment, for whom we run a horizon scanning project. So horizon scanning means that we look at all the latest scientific studies that come out and analyze them from the perspective of protection of environment nature and health. The results of this exercise are made available to the public. Um, and I'd like now to jump into the subject matter and explain a bit about the history of genetic engineering as well as the context uh, of the debate. Um, so here you see a graph about old genetic, uh, genetic engineering techniques which have been around since the 1990s more or less. Um, so we've been looking at them uh, uh, these, these GMOs are subject to official risk assessment in the European Union. There is legislation which foresees this. Uh, but still, even so this risk assessment is carried out, there are often important questions on risks which are not answered in a satisfactory way. So that's one of the tasks which we are doing. We're carrying out critical appraisals for almost all of the GMOs that are authorized on the EU market. And we have a database about this on our homepage. Um, 
But in recent years, we've been focusing a lot on new techniques of genetic engineering, uh, like most famously the CRISPR-Cas technique, because as you see on this graph, the interest in these old genetic engineering techniques is actually going down. We see less and less applications uh, for selling these products on the EU market, but we see a big lobby push to deregulate or take out of the legislation these newer genetic engineering techniques and the most uh, important one is this CRISPR-Cas technique. Um, but maybe to explain a little bit about the legislation currently in place in Europe, um, we have a European Union GMO law. So with this foresees risk assessment and also labeling, which provides transparency to farmers, food producers and consumers. So in this way, they are able to know what they are eating or what they are sowing on their fields. And this requirement to label genetically engineered food as GMOs has contributed to these products being virtually absent from the European food market. In result, it is very hard, if, if not impossible, to find products labeled GMOs in supermarkets, at least up until now. This is because supermarkets decided not to sell such products because they knew that consumers did not want them. However, there is a loophole in the EU's legislation, which means that thousands of tons of genetically engineered feedstuff are imported every day to feed Europe's farm animals. So the meat, milk and eggs stemming from these animals must not be labeled. Some big producers and retailers have tried to remedy this situation by introducing voluntary GE-free labeling, which has been especially successful in countries like Germany and Austria, and has led to increasing, increasing transparency. So before I go on, I'd just like to make a short point about the wording that I'm using. You may have noticed that sometimes I refer to GMOs and sometimes to genetically engineered organisms. And this is just to say that in general, we prefer genetical, genetically engineered organisms because it's more specific. Genetic, genetic modification or GMO is very broad. And actually, if you apply conventional breeding, this is also a type of genetic modification. So we prefer genetically engineered to talk really about biotechnology being applied. Um, and we only use GMOs when talking about the legislation because that's the term which is used in the legislation in Europe. Uh, and interestingly, plants derived from applications such as CRISPR-Cas are also considered as genetically engineered in the USA, although they are not labeled and only regulated in a fragmentary way. Um, so I talked earlier about this big lobby push to get these newer uh, techniques of genetic engineering deregulated in Europe, because of course it would be much easier to sell them on the European market if they did not have to be labeled nor risk assessed. And uh, the reasons that proponents are putting forward why uh, these uh, organisms should be used is because supposedly they could help agriculture to reduce pesticide use, they could achieve higher yields and adapt to climate change. 
amongst other promises. So I think these arguments probably sound familiar to you because I think they are pretty much the same as uh, being put forward on both sides of the Atlantic. However, uh, none of these promises have substantiated so far. There's no independent technology assessment to back this up. On the contrary, very similar arguments were used back in the 1990s to bring first generation GE on the market. But again, they have not substantiated. Instead, what happened is that GE seeds were sold that were either resistant to herbicides or producing their own insecticides, which resulted in a rise in the use of herbicides, resistance in weeds, and also pest insects. Um, so the proponents of this new lobby push include the uh, usual suspects, big agri-players like Bayer, Syngenta, ChemChina, ChemChina and Cortiva, previously Dow DuPont, who hold many patents on the technology. The company Cortiva has gained a gatekeeper position, as you can see on this slide. It pulls dozens of strategic patents on the CRISPR technology, partially owned by themselves, partially by the original inventors of the technology, such as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Therefore, any breeder who wants to have broad access to the technology has to sign license, licensing agreements with Cortiva. Um, this creates two problems. Firstly, licensing contracts hamper the access to the technology for breeders. And secondly, it also creates a problem for conventional breeders who may not even be interested in using this technology because several of these patents not only claim the technology as such, but also all uses of the biological material such as specific gene variants, which are needed by all breeders. So if you are interested in the subject, we also published a dedicated report, which you can find on our website. Apart from these industry players, we also see a lot of people in the scientific community actively promoting the introduction of new GE plants and animals into agriculture. For example, by using social media, creating communities on social media and so on. Again, many of these scientists hold patents on the technology and its applications, which necessarily creates conflicts of interest. A patent holder has a financial interest in the use and marketing and may be biased when it comes to the balance between risks and benefits of these organisms. Also, many of these scientists do not have a background in ecology. I would not blame these problems only on the individual scientists, but rather on political choices when it comes to the funding of research. Most money goes into applied research, whilst research on risks is severely underfunded. For example, between 2007 and 2020, the European Union spent more than 680 million euro on research projects relating to biotechnology in agriculture and food. However, the entire sum seems to have gone into applied research and nothing into targeted research on risks or detection and identification of these new organisms. But I think this is also a situation which is quite similar on your side of the Atlantic. The result of these lobbying efforts by both the industry and scientists is that the highest organ of the European Union, which is the European Commission, seems to have clearly chosen its sides. 
Here we see the announcement of a conference that the European Commission organized last November. You can see it is very, very bold in claiming that those new genomic techniques, which is the wording that they prefer to use, can help to make our food systems more sustainable. I would at least put a question mark there. They even call them the way forward for safe and sustainable in innovation in the agri-food sector. Actually, the European Commission is uh, now- Astrid, uh, we're losing you a little bit. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, can you, can you say this again? I think we lost you just for this slide. Oh, okay, um, sure. Um, I was saying that here on this slide, you can see the announcement of a conference which took place last November and which was organized by the European Commission. And you can see that it's very, very bold in claiming that these new genomic techniques, as they like to call them, can help to make our food systems more sustainable. And I would at least put a question mark there. And you can also see that they even call them the way forward for safe and sustainable innovation in the agri-food sector. Um, so the European Commission is actually now working on a legal proposal which could, from all we know, exempt large parts of new GE techniques from current risk assessment and labeling requirements. Um, so after this overview about the political debate and the context, I would now like to focus a little bit more on the techniques themselves and also the risks that they can carry for health and environment, uh, which is really at the heart of Test Biotech's work. Um, so I will explain how they function, what are the difference to other more conventional techniques of plant breeding um, and what can be their risks. And we think this is very important to understand because the purpose of GMO legislation is to find a way to deal with risky technologies. Uh, so in a way to use the technology whilst also making sure that it does not harm environment and health to find a balance there. So the reason why we have a legislation in Europe is, uh, which is based on the precautionary principle, uh, is that we are actually dealing with a risky technology. So if you want to have these GMOs to be risk assessed and labeled, you have to be able to explain what their specific risks are. Um, I put here uh, a report as well as a video, which you can find on our website to look into these risks um, if you want to learn more about them. Because uh, as Sarah said before, I'm actually not trained as a biologist, I'm trained as a social scientist. So I can just give you like a general overview of, over the subject. But if you want to look into the details, I recommend these reports and videos to you. Um, so just to say that uh, there are quite a few different new GE techniques, but as I said before, the CRISPR-Cas technique is really the most relevant and also the one that scientists get most excited about. This is because it's very powerful, whilst at the same time, relatively easy to handle. Uh, the technique was discovered in 2012 and its inventors were awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry eight years later in 2020. So this already shows that we are dealing with a revolutionary technique with a lot of technical potential. Otherwise it would 
not have won the Nobel Prize. So, and as we are speaking, the technical possibilities continue to increase. They involve complex changes in domesticated plants and animals, as well as gene drives aiming to change natural populations. When it comes to CRISPR-Cas, industry lobbyists trying to make the public believe that the technology will just lead to the same type of mutations that can be expected from evolution or conventional breeding. But this is wrong. In reality, these technologies come with specific risks which are linked to their huge technical potential as well as their unintended effects. So let's try for, uh, first to understand how CRISPR-Cas works. So in the first step, uh, the genetic information for these gene scissors is synthesized in the lab. And then, especially in the case of plants, inserted into the cell by using old genetic engineering techniques in most cases. And then as a third step, uh, it is inserted into the cell's own DNA, where it starts to produce the so-called gene scissors, which are enzymes that can cut DNA or nucleases. These enzymes go along with guide molecules or RNA. These complex biological machines then can cut at sites of the genome which were programmed by the genetic engineers. So in order to bring about the wanted changes, the engineers need to know the exact site in the genome which should be changed. So what are the differences to conventional breeding? Uh, because these are really crucial uh, to understand what can be the specific risks. Uh, one difference is that CRISPR-Cas can override the natural mechanisms of genome organization. Therefore, CRISPR-Cas can make the genome accessible to human intervention to a larger degree if compared to conventional breeding. You will be able to see organisms that show completely new biological characteristics that are very unlikely to come about uh, through natural evolution or conventional breeding. One could even say that this is the purpose that the technology is designed for, to bring about organisms that go beyond what is known from nature and what is possible with conventional breeding. And this is also true in case no new genes are inserted into the organism. Then secondly, uh, CRISPR-Cas is also often much less precise than it claims to be. Um, it can give rise to unintended effects, such as rearrangement of the genome, including unintended insertion of additional genes. In many cases, uh, it also cuts unintentionally in regions which are similar to the target DNA, meaning the gene scissors uh, cut by mistake. And as a third factor, it has to be taken into account that old genetic ten, uh, engineering techniques are used to insert the gene scissors into the DNA of the cells. So this also goes along with uh, specific risks. The result of all of this is that both intended as well as unintended effects can give rise to risks for environment and health. And all of these need to be thoroughly examined during risk assessment. So I know that what I've been saying may sound a little bit abstract if you are not so familiar with this debate. So we have tried to develop some examples to illustrate uh, what we are talking about and make it a little bit more comprehensible or more lively. 
Um, so the first example is uh, wheat, which uh, should bring about health benefits by trying to reduce the gluten which is produced in the food, but it can actually result in new health risks. So this is a wheat which was developed by a team of scientists, including some from the US company Calixt, which tried to lower the gluten content uh, to avoid negative health impacts such as inflammatory processes in sensitive consumers. And this is especially in interesting because in this case, no new genes were inserted. Instead, the scientists used the gene scissors to switch off 35 out of 45 genes which contribute to the presence of gluten proteins in the final food product. However, it is not clear if some of the altered genes may now produce new variants of proteins which can contribute or foster the inflammatory processes or which may cause new health issues for consumers. So as long as no risk assessment is carried out, it is impossible to know whether the wheat is safe for human consumption or not. Then I have the example of camelina where the oil content was changed uh, in order to uh, adapted to the requirements of biofuel production. However, such a change can also have repercussions for pollinators feeding on the plants. Also, these plants can spread in the environment in an uncontrolled way and can cross with wild relatives. They may also easily end up in the human food chain. Again, the conclusion is that SORA risk assessment needs to be carried out before a release because otherwise it is impossible to say what would be the consequences for both environment and health. However, the US agency APHIS already gave its okay for the release of the GE Camelina in 2018 without detailed risk assessment being carried out. And as a third uh, example, I have uh, an experiment with a tomato, uh, which was carried out by scientists in 2018 they applied CRISPR-Cas to non-domesticated wild tomatoes to change several genes at the same time. The result was quite impressive uh, because the experiment resulted in tomatoes that looked like modern hybrid tomatoes. However, just because they look like modern tomatoes does not mean they are safe for consumption or cultivation. The composition of the tomatoes are quite different to modern tomatoes and it is hard for the regulator who wants to carry out a risk assessment to know what they should even compare it to. So this example again shows that major changes in food plants are possible without inserting any new genes. So these examples uh, are in one way or another related to the intended effects, but there are also examples for risks of unintended effects, which may occur due to the process of application of the technology. So, Therefore, risk assessment has to look at the process in a first step and not, not only evaluate the final product. So uh, to sum up, we would argue that plants and animals developed with new genetic engineering need to be subject to a case-by-case -case risk assessment to evaluate the effects of both the intended and unintended changes brought about by the genetic engineering process. In Europe, this is what the current GMO regulations foresee. We would also strongly recommend to look at the systemic impacts. 
if a large number of new GE organisms are released into the environment within short periods of time, they may become disruptive to ecosystems and severely endanger biodiversity. This is similar to what we are seeing with plastics and chemicals polluting the environment, and there is no way of bringing them back. When compared to chemicals, we would even expect more complex interactions between new GE organisms and the environment, since we are dealing with living organisms here. In addition, we are also demanding to carry out a technology assessment, which could assess potential benefits in an independent way and would represent a second level of scrutiny to evaluate whether these technologies are really needed and suitable to solve the problems at stake. Um, I prepared a slide about what would happen if there is no proper legislation in place. So without proper uh, legislation, severe damage to bio biological diversity is likely. Also, risks to food production may be introduced and accumulate unnoticed. Access to data needed for risk assessment by independent experts is not made available. No measures can be taken against the uncontrolled spread of the organisms in the environment. No data are available to track and trace the new GE organisms and products derived thereof. Agriculture and food production relying on GE free sources can no longer be protected. So I think this nicely illustrates why we need to have proper legislation in place to deal with this risky technology. And I would like to end by taking a bird's eye perspective. As societies, we've been going from one crisis to the next. We're barely coming out of the corona crisis and now we're facing war in Ukraine. We caused climate changes, which will impact many of the following generations and can cause further extinction of species. In all cases, many say that there is a lot that could have been done beforehand to mitigate these crises from happening. Now, uh, with new uh, genetic engineering, I don't want us in five, 10 or 20 years from now to wake up and say, oh, we're facing a new biodiversity crisis because new genetic engineering has actually made things worse. This is why we are warning decision makers to take the necessary precautions now and not when it is already too late. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Astrid. You've given us a lot of food for thought uh, this morning. Uh, very informative. Um, and uh, I think the work that you're doing at Test Biotech is really important. And I'm, I'm glad that organizations like you exist and are, are trying to reach, you, you know, use um, evidence and science to, to, to illustrate uh, some of the, uh, the risks that are associated with genetic engineering. Um, as people start putting questions in, I, I have a few questions myself. Um, so what actually one question that I personally um, am struggling to understand, and maybe you can explain it a little bit more, is you talked about the distinction between genetic engineering and genetic modification, and you were saying that you prefer to use the word genetic engineering because modification also means could be part of regular breeding. Could you explain that a little bit more so that we get educated ourselves in the, in the language? Yes, sure. Um, 
Well, genetic modification, basically, it just means that you modify uh, the genetic makeup of an organism. And this can be uh, the result of many different techniques, including conventional breeding, which uses, uh, for example, techniques of random mutagenesis. So in this case, uh, you can apply um, radiation, um, uh, radiation or chemicals to to seeds, or uh, and then you can actually uh, speed up the mutations that take place in the genome. Uh, so you are also modifying uh, the genetic makeup of the organism, and then you have a next step of selection and so on. Uh, but the thing is, when you are applying these conventional breeding techniques like random mutagenesis, you still stay within the uh, borders of the genome regulation, while biotechnology goes much further. You can actually override the uh, uh, the genetic uh, organization, the genome organization, sorry. So we think it is important to keep those things apart because we know about the specific risks of genetic engineering techniques, whilst conventional breeding techniques may also carry some risks that we maybe are not fully aware of, but they have been used for quite a few years now. And um, we think it's important to keep those things apart. So we prefer to use genetic engineering. Great. There are a few questions. I don't know that we have time for all of them, but I'll start with uh, Gina's question. Um, she says, great talk. And could you say more about the known negative impacts of genetic engineering to the environment? So you, yeah. Okay. Well, as I said, uh, what we've, seen on the fields are mostly first generation genetic engineering techniques, so not CRISPR-Cas. CRISPR-Cas is quite new, but since the, the 1990s we've been seeing uh, genetically engineered plants that were engineered using older techniques, and there uh, actually almost all of these plants have only two properties. One of them is either to be resistant against herbicides or another one is to produce their own insecticides and this has actually led to more uh, herbicides being used on the fields you've also seen uh, weeds that come up which are resistant to herbicides or also insects which are resistant so this has really uh, had quite a huge impact on the environment and uh, uh, I think you must know more about it because you have much more cultivation uh, of these genetically engineered crops in the US than we have in Europe. In Europe, there's only one single crop which is authorized for cultivation, but in the US uh, and in other cultivating countries like South America, there have been huge problems linked, linked to these properties. Um, but of course, in the future, things may change because CRISPR-Cas is able to produce other traits as well, not only uh, pesticide resistance, but you can have all different kinds of traits. So this 
can bring new problems for the environment, which are not only linked to uh, uh, overuse of pesticides, but which may also, for example, be linked to interactions with uh, wild species in the ecosystems uh, and so on. So. Thank you so much, Astrid. I think we've come to time. Um, so much that we could un unpack in this. Uh, I do hope that people who have questions will come and join us at the 2.15 Eastern Time session so that we can see how we can envision some of these problems and challenges in how we want to think of how slow food wants to move forward in protecting uh, seeds. So again, thank you for your time and thank you for staying up late and um, we hope to engage with you again. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.